We're doing this brand new series called Stranger Things. Stranger Things. Um, for the last three months, we've been doing this expository teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter by chapter. So this month, we're going to be doing a topical, a topical um, uh, message on strange, strange Bible passages. Right? And there's a lot of strange Bible passages, right? And we started communion with one. You come on, let's eat my flesh and drink my blood. Oh my gosh, that took a dark turn really quickly. I was really into uh, everything else, Jesus, but until this, this whole thing. And, and, but, you know, there's, so we're going to be diving into some of these things. And when it, comes to, when it comes to the spiritual world, it can be kind of strange, especially in the Bible. It can be kind of freaky and scary. And, and did you know... Did you know the scariest genre of movies, do you know what it is? It's not the zombie movies. It's not movies about, um, about alien invasions. But the scariest genre of movies is the supernatural. It is the, it's, 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 it's rated right across the world. People who aren't even Christians, it's the supernatural. Do you know why? Because everybody knows that aliens aren't real. Everyone knows that zombies aren't real. But the supernatural... Even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in God, there's this thing you're like, oh man, this is real possibility. This thing, the supernatural. Have you ever gone somewhere and you felt like the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up and you're like, there's this evil presence. You don't, you don't know what it is. You just, it's just, have you ever been there before? Like, you know, just, even just walking past someplace and you just get this strange feeling. Where does it come from? Where does evil come from? What's the, is, and, and is the devil's name Lucifer or is it Satan? What is it? And so today's message, we're going to be exploring that in this strange Bible passage for Stranger Things today. If you're looking for a title of today's message, it is the first rebellion. The first rebellion, which kind of clues you in that there's other rebellions. But today we're going to be looking at the first rebellion. And... Um, and just so we can get our categories right with some biblical terms, I thought today I'm going to do something slightly different that I've never done before. I'm going to kind of make this interactive, with, and I'm going to be using some videos from the Bible Project. If you don't know the Bible Project, it's amazing. Tim, Dr. Tim Mackey, he's an uh, ancient Hebrew Bible scholar, um, and his team has put together some good explainer videos. And I thought, you know what, rather than trying, me trying to undo this, I've got, some, I've got a video I want to play. And it's just to help us get some categories right so we can just lay the foundation for as we're going to get into the next part. So take a look at this. When most people think about the story of the Bible, they think of a story about God and humans. But remember, we learned that there's a whole other cast of characters that appears throughout the Bible and plays a really important role. Right. Spiritual beings, angels, demons, and the like. Right. And in the Bible, they inhabit the heavenly realm, which is parallel to our earthly reality and actually overlaps with it. Now, all of these spiritual beings have their own unique characteristics. But here's what's fascinating. The biblical authors have one word that can refer to all the inhabitants of the spiritual realm. In Old Testament Hebrew, the word is Elohim, and in New Testament Greek, it's Theos. But here's the thing. This word gets translated in lots of different ways depending on which being is referred to. Angels, gods with a lowercase g, or even God with a capital G. Wait, so one word can refer to any of these beings? Yeah. It's because Elohim is a category title. It can designate any spiritual being that belongs to the heavenly realm. Okay, a title, not a name. Like the word mom. Yeah, right. The word mom can refer to lots of really different kinds of people, but they all share in common the same role in a family. 
And then let's say a group of brothers and sisters are talking and one says, hey, it's mom's birthday. They're using the title like it's a name. But it would be clear that they're referring not to any mom, but their mom. Yes, and the same goes for the biblical authors. They called their God Yahweh, which is the name revealed to Moses. But they also sometimes refer to him with the category title Elohim, using it like a name, because they all know who they're referring to. Okay, but don't the biblical authors think that Yahweh is in a class of his own, not like any other? They do, which is why they say things like, Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim that is, the chief Elohim among all the others. Or they'll say, there's no Elohim beside Yahweh, meaning no other spiritual being compares to him because only he is the ruler and creator of all things. Okay, I'm following, but I thought the Bible taught monotheism, which means there's just one God. Well, the biblical authors are claiming that among all of the spiritual beings out there, only one is the source and creator of all things, including the Elohim. That's biblical monotheism, that one Elohim, Yahweh, is above all other Elohim, that is, the other spiritual beings. Now, with all that said, we are ready to learn more about who these other Elohim are and how they fit into the biblical story. All right, there we go. We've got our first category, Elohim. And we even sung it, that he's the, he's the God of gods. We even sung that in, in uh, I Exhort Thee, that he is the Elohim of all Elohim. That Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is like Yahweh. Because out of this Elohim, he's, he, he's able to, to, to bring a universe out of his being, and he creates all things. And, this is who, and these are the categories we have. And so Elohim, Elohim is a spiritual being. And in the Bible, it refers to God, refers to gods, or even uh, uh, refers to a human spirit. When the witch of Endor and Saul sneaks and sees the witch who's a, who's a diviner, right? The witch of Endor, she's a uh, fortune teller and something that God forbid um, Israel to do. Don't do this. Because you, you don't actually, the reason I wanted to do it, because these spiritual realms, it's real. And so she, this diviner and the, the witch of Endor in the Bible, this, you know, Saul sneaking up, he wants to see, speak to Samuel. Samuel's died, he's dead. And so she goes to start doing her divining thing. She's a diviner. And she's shocked. Because it actually happens. He goes, oh, I see an Elohim coming out of the ground. It's the spirit of Samuel. So Samuel's an Elohim, a spiritual being. And, and so and she's shocked. And then, and then God brings judgment because you're not supposed to do this. Right? So these are these categories. So keep these in your mind. So let's, let's have a look at this, the, our first strange Bible passage. And that goes right to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So let's take a look at this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that Yahweh our Elohim had made. These are those things. L-O-R-D, Yahweh, G-O-D, Elohim. So, so the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did Elohim, the God, really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? I don't know about you, but I've never ever heard a snake talk before. What's the Bible talking about? Talking animals? What's going on here? Have you ever been to the zoo and you go, whoa, that's one creepy snake, and the snakes never ever replied saying, hey, speak for yourself, right? Here's the thing. Animals can't talk. Snakes can't talk, right? So what's going on? And actually, the Hebrew word here for snake or for serpent is the Hebrew word nakash or nahash, nahash. Trying to say this, and so and it means serpent or snake, but the same word nahash, the same spelling in Hebrew and the Hebrew letters also means diviner. 
Oh, diviner, spellcaster, something that was forbidden. Divination was forbidden because you're dealing with real spiritual beings. These, these aren't games, you know, when you go to fall to tarot cards. These are real things. These are real spiritual beings you're dealing with. This is why uh, God, and, and God is protecting you. And you don't go to fortune tellers, hey, what's, what's on the cards? Okay, these, these are real beings, Elohims, they're real, and, they're, and, and they mean business. And so, so the ancient Israelites, when they're reading the story, they see, they don't just see serpent, they see diviner. There's something different about this being. It's more than, it's not just an animal. It's more than that. So the snake, this diviner, is what, is what um, Eve encounters in, in verse 7, uh, verse 2. Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. And she's referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. We can't eat from that tree, God said. You must not eat of it or even touch it. Well, actually, God didn't say that she added that. If you do, you will die. In verse 4, you won't die. The serpent, the diviner, the spellcaster replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like an Elohim. You'll be just like one of us. You'll be like an Elohim. You'll be like God. You'll know knowing both good and evil. So you'll be like what? She, so the snake's enticing this, this human, this physical being, and say, hey, you want to be an Elohim? You can, if you take bite of this fruit, you can be like an Elohim. And then you will know good and bad on your own terms. You'll be just like us. So why does the snake deceive humanity? To become like an Elohim. See, why is the snake rebelling uh, against the commands of God? The first rebel, right? And this is interactive, so we're going to take a look at the next short video from the Bible Project. So take a look at this. If you pick up the Bible, you don't have to read far before you meet the main character, God. Yeah, he appears in the Bible's first sentence. And then later on page one, you meet the humans. And there you have it. The two main players in the Bible, God and humans on the stage of our world. Well, not quite. In the Bible, there's actually a way bigger cast of characters than just humans and God. Like who? I mean the figures called the Elohim in the Hebrew scriptures. Angels, the Satan, demons, they're all over the story. Oh right, spiritual beings. To be honest, I've never really known what to do with them. It's all kind of weird. And unfortunately, almost all of our modern conceptions about these beings are based on serious misunderstandings. All right, so let's talk about spiritual beings in the story of the Bible. So first thing we have to do is reorient ourselves to how the ancient biblical authors saw the world. On pages one and two of Genesis, God brings order to a watery wilderness, separating the skies above from the land below. Right, this is earth where we live. And then there's the heavens high above, which they saw as God's domain. But in the Bible, these spaces are not separate. They overlap. And in fact, the Garden of Eden is described throughout the Bible as a high mountain garden where heaven and earth are one. Cool. So that's the world. Now it needs some creatures. God first creates and appoints the sun, moon, and stars to rule the day and night. You mean the giant flaming gas balls in the sky? Well, that's how you think about them. But the biblical authors, like all ancient people, saw them as heavenly creatures that are glorious, shining bright, and high above. Which is strange. I don't think of stars as creatures. Well, you don't. 
But for the biblical authors, the stars formed their categories for thinking and talking about a spiritual reality that exists alongside ours. And it's a different kind of reality, just like the sky is different from the land. And it's populated with creatures that have different kinds of bodies, shiny spiritual bodies. Okay, so almost all ancient cultures thought of the stars as divine beings, including the ancient Israelites. But the biblical authors make clear that these beings are not God. Rather, they're images of God. Their glory and high status is a reflection of the Creator's glory and status, and they exist to serve His purposes. So the stars symbolize beings who are like God's heavenly staff team. Right. Now let's go back, because after God appointed the heavenly host, He also appointed another type of creature. The humans. Yeah, in Hebrew they're called Adam, which sounds like the Hebrew word for dirt because that's what they're made of. So glorious rulers above and hairy sapiens below. But then comes the great twist. God tells the lowly humans that they are to rule all of creation. He invites them to rise above their dirty origins and share in God's glory as his partners. So God wants to rule the world through humans and not the spiritual beings. Exactly. This is how the poet of Psalm 8 understood the stories of Genesis. He looked up at the stars and says, What is humanity that you consider him? You made him lower than the spiritual beings, but crowned him with glory and divine majesty. This is humanity's high calling, to rule creation in the love and power of God. Very cool. But not everyone's happy. We're introduced to a spiritual being who doesn't want humans to rule. So he tricks them into thinking that they can get divine power on their own terms. They're deceived and they take the opportunity. Well, there you go. I'll stop the right there. So there we have it. This is a, it kind of like just fills it out a little bit more. You've got this... There's got this, this being that's not happy with humanity, with God giving humanity, you have to rule over, have dominion over, subdue. Subdue means you've got to, there's a bit of a wrestle going on, subdue all things. And so, so who is this serpent, this snake, and, and what other references can we say that this snake is an Elohim? And the Bible gives us more clues, and, and when we look at the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, it clues us in a bit more of this, of this character, the serpent. In fact, Isaiah, if we go to, go to Isaiah chapter 14, this is what it says, this 14 verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. And what's the star's reference to? For the, uh, for the ancient Israelites, they looked at stars as these spiritual beings. O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. Cut down to the ground. You laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol. You're brought down to Sheol, the realm of the dead, to the far reaches of the pit. So, so here we have, we've got Isaiah, and he's taunting a human king. He's taunting a human king. But he draws references from this spiritual rebel. And the original rebel is found in Genesis chapter 3. So what did this rebel want? It wanted to rule. This rebel wanted dominion. What's really interesting, if you look at verse 12, it says that, it says that he's cut down to the ground, to the dirt, to the dust. But then we see in verse 15, 
It's not the ground, but it's Sheol. That's because for, for ancient Hebrews, this category, the ground, dirt, Eretz, earth, also refers to the underworld, to the realm of the dead. To the realm of the dead. In fact, let's take a look at this translation in the authorized King James Version. Any King James readers out there? Well, here's, here's, you're in luck. I'm actually using something from the authorized King James Version. See what it says in the, and this is the only translation, this is the only English translation that translates this verse like this. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Right? And this is the only English translation that will have Lucifer. And you won't find Lucifer anywhere else but in the King James. Why Lucifer? Why do they use Lucifer? The reason why they use Lucifer, because Lucifer is a Latin word, a Latin word that means light bringer, which kind of clues us in, a light bringer, the shiny ones, an Elohim. And then you've got all these other categories. You've got these other categories like, like you've, got, you've got the Satan and you've got the devil. Where do those come from? Those categories come from. Again, they're, they're, they're titles. They're not names. They're not personal names. Lucifer isn't the devil's personal name. It's a title. It's, just, it's, it's describing what he is. He's a shining one. Right? And, and the Satan it comes from the Hebrew word hasatan. Hasatan, which means the Satan. means the adversary. And then the devil is the Greek equivalent. It's, it's diablos, which means the slanderer. So these are titles. These are describing the serpent and what he is. He's a light bringer. He's, an, he's, he's not just an animal, but he's just the shining one. He's the adversary of God. He's the slanderer. And these are descriptions. These are titles. These aren't personal names. These are titles. Then when we get to the New Testament, they begin to describe this, this, this rebel as the leader of the forces of the spiritual darkness. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, and he sees the dragon. There's another term. The dragon, the ancient serpent. Now it was tying it all together to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent, the serpent is that dragon. This serpent, this ancient serpent, is the devil, the Satan, the Hasatan, the adversary of God, the slanderer, the shining one. This is who he is. And, and, it, and his destination has been set. He doesn't win. He doesn't win. So this rebel, this spellcaster, this diviner, this adversary, this slanderer doesn't like you. He doesn't like you. So what kind of spiritual being is he? And Ezekiel, again, gives us a clue. And he's, he's also taunting another earthly king, but he, he, draws, he draws from this ancient story. And Ezekiel chapter 28 says this. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the, high, the holy mountain of God. In the midst of stones of fire, you, wore, you walked. Verse 15. You were blameless in your ways, from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profound thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Is that word ground again? I cast you down to the realm of the dead to Sheol, to the pit. 
I exposed you before the king to, to feast their eyes on you. So Ezekiel calls this original rib, he calls him a cherub. So what does a cherub look like? And here's our last clip that I'm just, our interactive kind of message this morning. So take a look at this. We've been talking about spiritual beings in the Bible, and we've looked at how God is in the heavenly realms, but not by himself. There's a whole staff team that the Bible calls the Divine Council. But in the Bible, there are still more beings in the spiritual realm, like the cherubim and also the angels. So let's talk about them. Okay, first, the cherubim. These are chubby little babies with wings, right? No, you gotta get that image out of your head. Cherubim, or in Hebrew, cherubim, they're way more fascinating. They're described as hybrid creatures, a collage of different animals, and every time they do appear, they look a little bit different. That's intense. Yeah, they're supposed to be intimidating. They stand guard at the boundary between heaven and earth. If you see them, you know you're entering the presence of the one who is above all and truly other. The first time cherubim show up in the story of the Bible, they're standing outside of the Garden of Eden. Right, the garden is God's temple residence, and so he places these spiritual bodyguards at the entrance so that the rebel humans can't get back in and ruin everything. But the biblical story is about how God wants us back in his presence. Yes, exactly. So this is why he chose the people of Israel and gave them the gift of a symbolic miniature Eden called the tabernacle, and then later the Jerusalem temple. In both of these spaces, cherubim were painted and engraved all over, reminding the priests that they are working in God's presence. Now, if a priest went into the Holy of Holies, he would see there a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant, and on it were two cherubim. What's going on here? Well, the biblical authors describe the ark as the footstool of God's throne, which the cherubim are carrying. Like we read in Psalm 99, God sits enthroned above the cherubim. But there was no actual throne above the box. Right, the Israelites weren't supposed to represent God with any physical image. But when the prophets had visions about this space, they saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. Okay, so cherubim guard the sacred space, carry God's throne, but why do they look like animal mashups? Well, they're symbolic representations of all the creatures of the earth because they all belong to God. This is why in Isaiah's vision, all of the creatures are singing, everything that fills the earth is God's glory. Like a choir. Yeah, through the cherubim, all creation offers praise to its maker. Great, that's the cherubim. Now let's talk about angels. I'm way more familiar with them, human-like figures with feathery wings. No, wait, stop. Angels in the Bible don't have wings. What? No wings? No angel wings. In fact, angels are often mistaken for people because they look like us. Just... Oh, you'll have to wait for next week for that one. <laughs> there we have it. So here we go. And it's trying to see these categories and these strange things in the Bible. And, and, and this is the, the writers of the Bible is cluing you into these, these things. So we've got this guardian cherub who, because of his pride, he didn't want anything, especially humans, to have dominion over him. So he sets in motion a scheme, a scheme to thwart the plans of God. So the snake says to Eve, what does the snake say to Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say? See, the enemy of God wants to bring doubt in your life. And the enemy of God will continue to speak to you. Did, did God really say that you're good enough? Do you, 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 you think you have what it takes? Do you think you can be a Christian? you think you can walk into this building? Do you know what you were doing last night? 
The enemy of God wants to sow doubt in your life and in your thoughts. Make you feel that you're not good enough. Not good enough in your marriage. Not good enough as a parent. Did God really say? You know, Jesus says this. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, The devil is the father of lies. And he is going to lie to you. He's going to keep on lying that God can't love someone like you. Nobody can love someone like you. You'll never, ever enter another meaningful relationship. Your father does not love you. Your mother does not love you. The enemy will begin to sow lies into your life. And Jesus recognized that the devil is the father of lies. So Adam and Eve, they believe the lie. And they seize the opportunity to define good and bad in their own eyes. And isn't that true of us? That we want to seize the opportunity to define good and bad for us. No one's going to tell me what to do. Certainly not God. They seize the opportunity and they take bite of this forbidden fruit. Verse 7, at that moment their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard Yahweh, heard the Lord God walking about the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And God said, who told you that you are naked? I didn't tell you that. Who told you that you're not qualified for that job that you're applying for? I didn't tell you that. Who told you that you are unworthy to come to church. I didn't tell you that. Who told you that you'll never amount to anything? I didn't tell you that. See, the devil is a liar. And he will continue to sow doubt in your life and he plants seeds in you. And if you continue to, to focus on those things, it will begin to sprout in your life and you'll feel unworthy. He will try to separate you and, and rob you of your joy and your hope. And he does this very subtly because he's the shrewdest of all of God's creation. So humanity is cast from the garden. The devil thought he had one. But God says to the serpent, to the snake, in verse 14, chapter 3, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. What's another meaning for dust? What's another meaning for ground? The realm of the dead. Your dominion will be death. This is your dominion. You brought it in, it is yours. Verse 15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. I love the NRV's translation. He will crush your head. The snake crusher. There's another human coming, and he is going to be the snake crusher. You will strike his heel. 
So God sets in motion, right on the garden. He sets a, a, a plan of redemption. So humanity go on and they begin to fill the world with violence, seizing the opportunity to create a world in their own image, not in God's image, but in their own image, a world of violence. And they become the offspring of the snake. So when Jesus enters the story, he begins declaring God's reign to take back this world from the offsprings of the snake. And Jesus does this by confronting evil, specifically by reaching out to the most hurting, broken people. What does it look like? It looks like a leper being healed. It looks like those who have been rejected by society being welcomed in. It looks like a woman who's been caught in adultery, forgiven. It looks like compassion. See, the rulers of the world don't like this. So they set a plan to kill Jesus. You know, you know what the crazy thing is? Jesus lets them. He lets them. How is Jesus going to crush the head of the snake? Jesus believed that it was an act of sacrificial love for his enemy by letting the snake strike him. In fact, the writer of Hebrews explains the strange deliverance when he says that Jesus took on flesh. He became human so that in, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, who will eat the dust. That is the devil and deliver all those things through the fear of death was subject to lifelong slavery. Here's the thing. Jesus has set you free from the power of the snake. You no longer have to live in fear. We are no longer slaves to fear. Because three days later, Jesus showed that he conquered death by raising back to life. Because the snake crusher has become king. See, the cross is not just a symbol of your sins being forgiven, but it's an invitation to step into a new way of living, a new humanity. So how do we overcome the serpent? How do we come not be, become an offspring of the snake? How did Jesus do it? By loving our enemies, forgiving those who have hurt you, you know, if you're still holding to unf onto unforgiveness, the Bible tells me that you're, you're, becoming, you're becoming an offspring of the serpent. But Jesus has given you the power to overcome. We strike the serpent by loving those who have hurt us. I know it's hard. But will you forgive those? Will you love those? Because we are no longer slave to fear. Come on, let us pray.